This episode is brought to you by Circle, the issuer of USDC, one of the most trusted stablecoins in the digital asset industry. You'll be hearing all about them later in the show. What happens to don't fight the Fed when the Fed is tightening into the most inverted yield curve since April 1981? Hmm. Uh, that was the last time the Fed was raising interest rates, let alone the balance sheet. The last time the Fed was raising interest rates into a twos, tens yield curve of minus 80 basis points was in April of 1981. And then a recession, a double dip, was staring us in the face. Uh, so to be commenting on the prospect of a stock market bottom, a real fundamental bottom, as the Fed is still raising rates into an inverted yield curve, to me is the nuttiest proposition I've ever heard. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of On the Margin. Today, I'm joined by founder and president of Rosenberg Research, Dave Rosenberg. Dave, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Michael. Appreciate you having me on. Yeah, absolutely. So for the audience who's following along on video, we've got uh, Dave's got a very impressive bookshelf behind him. And if you hang around to the end of the interview, I'm going to ask him what is his favorite book and his recommendation for 2023 on that shelf. But you, you got to stay for the good stuff, all right? There's an element <laughs> of marketing to what we do here. Dave, I'd love to get your thoughts on, you know, I know you've been pretty outspoken on the the sort of question that a lot of people are asking themselves right now is, have we seen the worst of it or are what we're, is what we're looking at in the stock market right now a, a bear market rally? I know you've got some pointed thoughts there, so let's use that as a jumping off point. Right. Well, the answer is yes. I believe that uh, what we had coming off the October lows, uh, and of course we've rolled over since, was another in the uh, long list of bear market rallies that we had in 2022. Mm. Uh, and each one of them, you can see we come off uh the lows oversold on a technical basis uh you can see the action beneath the surface that a lot of short covering taking place when you're taking a look at how you know it's a bear market rally is when the heaviest short of stocks no matter how junky they are are the ones that lead the charge mm. and then you have to wait and see you know uh the market will hand it to you on a silver platter if you're willing to be patient uh will we break through and stay above the 200-day moving average. Uh, that is the line in the sand. And I think we've had probably six of these this year where you know we bounce off uh, an egregiously oversold interim low, and then we bounce to the 200-day moving average, or we approach it, we can get a little bit through it for a couple of days, but it has to be sustained, and then we roll right over. Uh, and this happened just a couple of weeks ago. So uh, I always try to preach uh, patience uh, and uh, discipline, uh, and to always maintain a certain degree of resolve and not to be chasing uh, these intermittent rallies unless you are a gifted trader in the realm of Paul Tudor Jones. If you think you're Paul Tudor Jones, chase these rallies. Just have your exit strategies and your hedges in place. Mm. But in answer to the fundamental question as to whether or not have we hit the actual bear market lows, uh, I don't see any signs that that's actually happened. So, so what would make you change your mind and say, hey, this is starting to look like a bottom? I know you've pointed to the yield curve. That's something that you have your eye on. You've been watching just how far we in, into the, the Fed tightening cycle. What are some mm -hmm. of the, you know, you've been doing this for, for a long period of time. What are some of the signs that we might be approaching a low or, or how much farther do you think we have to sink basically from here? Well, this is going to sound pretty glib, but I tend to find that when I can go four weeks without anybody asking me if we've hit the lows, 
I tend to think from a sentiment standpoint, we may have hit the lows, but I get asked every second day, have we hit the lows? So it's like, uh, you know, you're dealing with uh, kids in the backseat of the car driving to Disney and they keep asking, are we there yet? Mm -hmm. And I've uh, just been through too many of these cycles. But that's more sentiment and less um, fundamental. Uh, you know, we're not going to bottom with an 18 forward multiple. Uh, and typically, when the stock market bottoms in a fundamental bear market, it gets stupid cheap. And it gets so stupid cheap that you want to jump in with both feet because the expected returns going forward are so lucrative. And traditionally, the bottom or the trough in the multiple is more like 12 to 14. Mm. Uh, you know, when you go back to the Paul Volcker low, people say, well, what was, what was the Paul Volcker put? Everybody's asking about the Powell put. Well, the Paul Volcker put in the summer of 1982 was eight. Uh, and that was a touching off point if you had the liquidity in cash and if you weren't chasing and losing money on every one of these bear market rallies, we had uh, almost a, a two decade long uh, secular bull market that, that came actually off a stupid cheap stock market. Mm. Is the stock market stupid cheap at an 18 multiple? The answer is no, it's not. It's still very expensive. And when we get closer to 12 or 14, uh, I'm going to get a lot more excited. Uh, you know, the other thing that I tend to look at is the equity risk premium, you know, which compares, you know, the uh, earnings yield uh, to the underlying treasury yield. And uh, it's right now, call it 200 basis points. But you see at the lows, with a very tight standard deviation, uh, the ERP, as it's called, is more like 425 basis points. I mean... We're not even halfway there yet, is what I'm trying to say. We're not even halfway there. And then it's something that you and I talked about off camera, which is what I've been saying. Uh, and of course, uh, you have to have the view that we're going to recession. So look, if you're in the soft landing camp, if that's your view, and this is always a case where your assumptions will drive your conclusions. If you believe we're going to avert a recession, you want to buy the stock market. Mm. You want to buy the stock market. But you see... I think that the odds are overwhelmingly in favor of a recession in 2023. And if that's the case, then it's a matter of timing, not just magnitude. And traditionally, the market bottoms 70% of the way into the recession. Uh, in a recession bear market, not a correction, this doesn't look like a correction to me, but in a recession bear market, uh, you know, just as the market peaks ahead of the recession, the market bottoms ahead of the recovery, mm. the stock market's leading indicator. And normally you're in the call the seventh inning of the recession by the time it sees the whites of the eyes of the recovery. Well, that recovery is probably not going to come until end 2023, 2024. So we talk about a market bottom when the recession is only now starting or is about to start. It's just way too early uh, from a timing perspective. No, one, no one's going to ring the alarm bell at the lows to the day or the week. But if we're taking a look at the balance of risks, if you have a recession view, which I do, the markup bottoms 70% of the way through, again, with very little deviation from the norm in that regard. Mm. And then we have to basically take a, a look at the Fed. You know, it's very interesting about, you know, the questions I get about uh, whether or not we bottomed. I find it, and it's just basically, I think, a commentary on human nature, that when the Fed is easing, let's take a look at, you know, 2020, post-March, uh, 2021, uh, 
or you can take a look at other cycles. When the Fed is easing or is accommodative, uh, then it's always don't fight the Fed. Don't fight the Fed. No matter how bad the economy is, don't fight the Fed. Uh, we had a very weak economy heading into 2019. Mm. Remember, uh, the Fed's last rate hike was December of 2018. And the economy wasn't doing so well at all. Don't fight the Fed. 2019 turned out to be a phenomenal year for the stock market, even with an economy that actually wasn't doing so well. This is, of course, all pre-COVID. Don't fight the Fed. Don't fight the Fed. Don't fight the Fed. Even when it seemed like we still had the Black Plague in our hands, when we still didn't even understand the nature of this pandemic. Mm. Uh, the Fed cuts rates to zero, radically expands its balance sheet, and the stock market was surging mm. and continued to surge. Don't fight the Fed. Don't fight the Fed. Don't fight the Fed. So what I find interesting is that I get lots of questions about, have we hit bottom yet? Have we hit bottom yet? Mm. Have we hit bottom yet? Nobody says to me uh, about fighting the Fed anymore because it seems in this industry, and let's face it, I've been doing this for almost 40 years. This industry is populated and dominated by bulls, by optimists. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. We should always be optimistic, but we should also be realistic. But I just asked the question, and it sounds rhetorical, what happens to don't fight the Fed when the Fed is tightening into the most inverted yield curve since April 1981? Hmm. Uh, that was the last time the Fed was raising interest rates, let alone the balance sheet. The last time the Fed was raising interest rates into a twos, tens yield curve of minus 80 basis points was in April of 1981. And then a recession, a double dip, was staring us in the face. Uh, so to be commenting on the prospect of a stock market bottom, a real fundamental bottom, as the Fed is still raising rates into an inverted yield curve, to me is the nuttiest proposition I've ever heard, but it's a proposition I get all the time. Like, uh, you know, basically here's what happens at the lows. Mm. I said before, we're 70% of the way into the economic downturn. The market is looking at the clouds parting at the lows. And the Fed is 70% of the way into the easing cycle. Well, Michael, there's still tightening policy mm. in an inverted yield curve. And we're talking about a market bottom. There's no evidence ever of the stock market bottoming, uh, especially in a recession, with the Fed tightening policy into an inverted yield curve. At the lows, the Fed has been cutting interest rates and cutting interest rates so forcefully that the twos tens curve, which I just said before, is about minus 80 basis points right now, mm. is plus 140 basis points. Uh, I mentioned about the multiple before, what that looks like at the lows. I mentioned the equity risk premium, what that looks like at the lows. But I'd say that the most important variable is the shape of the yield curve. And the Fed has to cut interest rates enough that the front end rallies sufficiently to cause a pivot in the yield curve to a positive slope. And normally it's 140 basis points when we finally get to those lows in the stock market and those lows in the stock market will come but it's not staring us in the face it's at best a second half of 2023 story mm. dave i think if i had to you know try to guess at why people what people are trying the the positive story that people are trying to see in this you know sort of dark forest of bad data that you're that you're mentioning is People are people are people think that the Fed basically are going to tighten until they break something, right? And kind of all eyes are on the U.S. Treasury market. There, I do think one thing that has surprised 
at least me, you know, if we rewind the clock to the start of this year, is that if you told me that the Fed was going to consistently hike rates 75 basis point meeting after meeting and that there wasn't and that the the Dixie, right, the DXY was going to go on a historic bull run, that nothing big was going to break in capital markets, including and I know we had, you know, some problems over in the UK, but largely in the US, everything's been pretty solid. I guess my, my question to you is, are, are you surprised that nothing major has has broken? And B, do you handicap to some degree, I don't know, the probability that if the Fed continues on the hiking cycle that they're on, eventually they're going to break something and have to pivot more quickly than otherwise? Well, look, the thing about interest rates, which uh, uh, Albert Einstein, who might have been a uh, physicist and won a, a Nobel Nobel uh, was a Nobel laureate in that regard, was actually mm. one of my favorite economists because he famously said that uh, the power of interest rates is the eighth wonder of the world. But you see, because the economy, most parts of the economy reset into higher interest rates with a lag, uh, tends to uh, take time uh, before things start to break, as you just said. Mm. And things start to break when cash flows start to contract which mm. hasn't happened yet right so it's like uh you know it's like telling me you know that uh you know the fed is raising rates pretty aggressively in uh 1988 89 and uh greenspan took over this is after the stock market crash they over eased and then they over tightened they inverted the yield curve not as inverted as it is today and michael you and i would have, have the same conversation you know what's breaking you know, and then by 1990, things were breaking pretty hard, like the entire savings and loan industry. And then we had to create RTC. And so we'd be having this conversation in, in 1988, 89, and you'd be saying like, so, you know, where's the beef? Well, the beef came, but it came with a lag. You know, it's mm -hmm. no different than when the Fed was raising rates in 1999 and into 2000. And uh, once again, inverted the yield curve, which everybody ignored. Um, but the most pernicious impacts of the tech wreck and the impact it had on capital markets and the economy happened in 01 and into 2002. Uh, so you'd be, you know, we weren't talking about WorldCom or Enron or about uh, um, technology detonation uh, until actually after the Fed was finished tightening policy. Mm. All the bad stuff tends to happen, you see, with lags and after the Fed's already done. For all the people that say, I can't wait for the pause. Yeah, be careful what you wish for. Yeah. You know, back when I was at Mother Merrill, uh, you think about it, uh, the Fed was done tightening in the uh, spring slash summer of 2006 after Bernanke took over from Greenspan. So once again, you'd be saying to me, you know, nothing's going on. Nothing's going on. Yeah, but we all know in 2007 and 08, a lot went on. Uh, and so I would just say to you that um, there's a lot of stuff that's going to happen that hasn't happened yet. Uh, there's extreme leverage in key corners of the capital markets globally. And if you looked at the Fed's latest, and I wrote about it extensively, didn't get much coverage, the Fed's latest semi-annual financial stability report. I called it the financial instability report. Uh, there's, there's, there's wide pockets, uh, of, uh, of problems, uh, that haven't reset yet to this world of higher interest rates. We see the interest rates in real time on our Bloomberg. We know what's happening with interest rates, but the economy has yet to really, uh, roll into that. And that's what really causes the economic recession. 
So the economic recession, you see what happens is then causes cash flows to decline at a time when debt service costs are on the rise. And that's when you get into the default cycle. And I get this all the time, Michael, about, well, default rates are so low, there's nothing to worry about. You know, it's like whistling past the graveyard or it's a, it's a classic case of just not paying attention to history, uh, that there are lags that are involved. But I'll tell you that what I'm starting to notice, especially in the consumer space, uh, in auto loans, for example, uh, I'd say primarily in in the credit card space. I mean, we've had a balloon, yeah. a balloon in, and this tells you something about the stresses in the consumer space. People talk about these excess savings, but you see the problem is that these excess savings, which is a leftover from all the fiscal largesse, you know, back in uh, 20, 2020, 2021, uh, it's in the wrong hands. That's in the hands of the fat cats who don't need to spend the money. It's very clear, and you can see it also in the spending habits and in the consumer confidence numbers, what's happening with the middle class and the low-end consumer. And they are resorting now to borrowing money on their credit cards to buy food. Uh, that is not a very good situation at 22% interest rates. Uh, but what I'm starting to notice as I come back to defaults, defaults are a lagging indicator, like the unemployment rate. And I'm starting to notice what is the root of defaults. The root of defaults is uh, 30 days in arrears. Let's just call it early stage delinquency. In a lot of cases in the mortgage market, auto loans, and in, and in uh, many parts of consumer credit, I'm talking specifically now about credit cards, uh, the 30-day past due rates are starting to climb significantly and actually in some cases at their highest level for the cycle and that's the feeder for the default cycle that's going to happen next year and then that's going to have some impact somewhere in the financial sector uh, so you're quite right there is no get out of jail free card uh, with a tightening cycle by the world's most important central bank of this magnitude uh, and I think that, it, you know, it's back to your question, which I feel all the time, which is like, I, we haven't seen anything yet. Right. And I have to take people back to 2006. Yeah, you didn't see anything yet. And then look what happened in 07. You didn't see anything in 2000. Oh, but what did you see in 2001? You see, there's, there, there's, there's, there's lags that are involved. And by the way, even if you don't get recessions, like, for example, the Fed doubled the funds rate from 3 to 6% back in 1994. Well, this is when Alan Greenspan developed the moniker uh, the maestro because we had a soft landing but you see the thing is the fed did invert the yield curve but they did double the funds rate mm. we had a soft landing in the economy but i would ask you was it a soft landing in mexico don't think so mm -hmm. yeah. was it a soft landing in orange county don't think so mm. and, and so uh you're right we haven't seen the financial repercussions yet we haven't even seen the economic repercussions yet and i'll say that part of that is because of the leftover of all that fiscal stimulus kept the consumer hanging on by a thread. That's been the story for the past couple of quarters. You see, you got the savings rate down to a 17-year low, barely more than 2%. Uh, and most of those savings for the people in the economy that do the spending, uh, they are now saving stretched and their debt ratios have gone up substantially. Uh, and so I think there's going to be a big price to pay. I'll tell you that, you know, right now the number that really has you most concerned is the fact that we have a 15% annualized growth in credit cards at a 22% interest rate. 
What does that mean when those bills come due next year? Uh, those rates adjust immediately. And if, in fact, household balance sheets were in such terrific shape as the consensus says, why have people been tapping their plastic at these interest rate levels to such a degree? So there's much more strain than meets the eye. Uh, and we haven't given this enough time yet. The Fed only started raising rates in March. And the lags are usually start about 12 months, 9 to 12 months. I mean, we're there already. And so I'd say 2022 was the year of the aggressive rate hikes. 2023 will be the year of when those lags from the hikes bite hard on the economy and on cash flows. Defaults that will trigger actually deflation, not inflation. And the Fed will be doing what it always does after an interest rate cycle, pause, and then we'll get the rate cuts in the second half of next year. And that's the cycle, the rate cycle, the market cycle, the economic cycle, uh, are all these sine waves that intersect with each other. And the answer is that it's not different this time. Dave, can, can you take me through what a a default cycle typically looks like? I want I want to peel some of the layers of the onion back, you know, to this analogy that you're using here. When I kind of look at the the debt on on the U.S. scale, I kind of have three different buckets for it. There's sort of consumer debt, there's corporate debt, and then there's sovereign debt. So we've been hiking rates across the board, right? And I think that's going to impact each of those buckets individually. Can you just kind of walk me through how how is it typically, what, what do those ripples typically look like throughout the economy um, as we raise rates, maybe differentially for those different buckets there? I'm actually, you know, people talk about how great household balance sheets are. But actually, when you look at the household debt to income ratio, it only looks good next to where it was at the peak of the last cycle, which was the biggest credit and housing bubble of all time. I think that uh, when you benchmark it against the peaks of other cycles, the household balance sheet doesn't look good at all. Uh, so what it looks like is basically, um, you know, people stop or they stop paying their debt or they have to restructure their debt. I'm actually more worried about the household sector than the corporate sector. The corporate sector did refinance. Uh, we didn't have much of a capital spending cycle. Uh, the corporate sector itself, I'm less concerned about from a default standpoint uh, than the household side. And you can see how the markets are reflecting this because taking a look at regional bank stocks, they're down 35% from the peak. Consumer finance stocks, they're down more than 30% from the peak. So the stock market itself, when you're digging you know, when you're tearing apart um, the layers from the market, it's telling you something about consumer credit quality. And, and that's more pernicious, Michael, because the consumer is 70% of GDP. Uh, the corporate sector is call it 10 to 15%. It's a lot smaller. So how it manifests itself is uh, I see it in, in credit cards. I see it in auto loans. But I'm starting to see the early stresses even in the, in the mortgage market. Now, people will always say, well, you know, mortgages don't reset uh, as quickly as they do in other forms of consumer credit. That much is true. Uh, but here's what really has me concerned is what happens if we get a similar decline in home prices, which is the bedrock. We know that the, the real residential real estate market is the bedrock for the entire system. Biggest asset class on the household balance sheet. 
uh, it's the biggest asset on commercial bank balance sheets. And we know from history that uh, whether it's regional, like it was in the late 80s, or whether it's national, like we had back in the mid to late 2000s, a, a popping of the housing bubble is never a good thing. And it leads to defaults. It pushes people into a negative net equity position in their homes. It makes uh, households feel poorer. It's actually the reverse image of everything we've seen in the past couple of years, but we know how these play out. Unfortunately, what's happened is that the housing bubble in the United States, the price bubble, the price bubble is bigger, is bigger heading into this year than it was back in 06 and 07 when I was pounding my fist on the table at Mother Barrel about uh, the housing bubble. And that was a national housing bubble. It wasn't regional, but even regional housing bubbles like we had back, say, in the late 80s, which was you know, New England and California, Texas, uh, that tipped the economy into recession too. Now, it was a mild recession to be sure, uh, but it was a recession that took down good chunks of the savings and loan industry. And I'm not saying that this is going to be enough to impair capital in the commercial bank industry. This is not what I'm saying. I'm not comparing this to what happened in 07 and 08 and 09. The banks are much better capitalized. We know that. Although we know that the non-bank financials, uh, there's big question marks. And we know that the banks, their share of outstanding credit is lower than it's been historically. So I'm not saying this is going to be, lightning doesn't strike twice. All I know is that when home prices go down, uh, and this time it will be a national home price decline, uh, because once again, every region was in its own particular housing bubble. And I'm talking about home price to rents, home price to incomes, home price to, in real terms, inflation, just the terms. This bubble was bigger. I mean, heading into this year, it took more than eight years of family income uh, to buy a single family home. Uh, that's about 30 to 40% above the historical norm. And you could say at some point, well, you know, that made sense where interest rates were at the time when you capitalize that off interest rates, but interest rates are not where they were, you know, 12 or 24 months ago. Uh, so the other part of this is the deflation that happens on household balance sheets. And what happens when those balance sheets shrink? And so what happens is that the asset values go down, but you see the liabilities stay the same. And it's that erosion in credit quality uh, that precipitates uh, the, uh, a different payment cycle, more restructuring, and higher defaults. Now, they don't go to the moon. We're talking about traditionally, these are small changes. But change is always at the margin when it comes to our world, which is financial markets. Uh, even in a recession, most people are still employed as a share of the labor force. In a recession, most people are still paying their debts on time. But you see, it's the rise in the late payment rate. It's the necessity for financial institutions to provide loan loss provisions against um, any further deterioration that causes something else to happen. Because this is all a very dynamic process. You can't forecast the economy. You can't forecast expansions or recessions in a static framework. So what happens when you go through a default cycle that provides an additional knock-on effect that then causes the Fed to have to ease policy even more? And this is going to happen. Uh, is that the banks, the lenders, start to curtail credit expansion. And we're seeing that in the survey data. The Fed's senior loan officer survey is already showing 
that the banks are starting to tighten their lending guidelines. It's tougher. So it's not just about the cost of credit. It's also about the availability of credit. And then that chokes off economic growth even more. And I take no joy out of talking about all this, especially at this time of the year. But, you know, uh, it's like my grandmother always told me, uh, forewarned is forearmed. Uh, and I just want people to stay out of trouble. Uh, this is not a permanent forecast. This is really a call for 2023. Uh, it's not going to be as bad as 2008. If that makes you feel better, it won't be as bad as 08. Um, but I still think it's going to be a year where you want to hunker down in your investments. You want to be very patient. You want to maintain resolve and avoid temptation. Uh, this is a year where I think your preservation of capital is going to matter more than trying to chase intermittent bear market rallies. That's my major point. Mm. I want to, you know, I, I liked how you kind of put this before about looking at this through the lens of the consumer. And actually a couple of charts that we've been showing on this podcast week after week is two that are very important, which is the savings rate, which you can see there's this crazy big spike when COVID happened and we are now below the pre-COVID levels. And then you can also look at consumer credit card debt, which we've also started to track on the show. And it's to your point, it's ballooning. And when you put those numbers together, the retail sales rate, uh, the real retail sales rate, even for inflation adjusted, is still positive. And that's probably why we haven't seen the contraction in earnings that many uh, that many industry watchers have been have been forecasting. I suppose I, I don't want to, it almost seems insensitive to, to phrase it like this, but my interpretation of what's going on is that for years, almost like Pavlov's dog, right? What has the Fed told us and, and the consumer, right? Don't worry about what happens in the economy. We've got your back. There were, uh, this was actually outside of the Fed, but there were fiscal transfers, right? Where the government supported people during the last two years. And I don't think people have gotten the message yet that that is no longer, that is no longer the, the mindset that the authorities have, uh, you know, that the way that they're thinking about things right now. So I guess my question to you is at, at risk of sounding insensitive, when does the back of the consumer get broken here, right? When do people start to wake up and face the economic reality that, things are going to be tougher this year because it seems both folks on Main Street, but also investors as well, are really hanging on to this this hope that, oh, this is all just a bear market and things are going to, going to turn around. When does that reality really set in? Well, look, I think that if you're willing to um, dig into the data, you'll see that um, these strains are already becoming apparent beneath the surface. Mm. One example is retail sector employment. Uh, which was negative in November, despite all the uh, uh, dancing around the non-farm payroll report. Retail sector employment was down more than 30,000 and down in each of the past three months by more than 60,000. So mm. when people come to me with that suggestion, uh, I will ask them, like I would ask you, so why are the retailers laying off uh, their staff to the extent they are in the past three months? Mm. Uh, what do the retailers see uh, that a lot of other people aren't seeing? And uh, I think it's, as you said, uh, there was quite a bit of leftover stimulus. I mean, those those stimulus checks were so massive uh, back in March of 2021. It was a gift that kept on giving. But you see, as you mentioned, the savings rate. And even if you look at the accumulated savings, um, that Energizer Bunny, is uh, running out of battery. And so we're not going to have that as a source of support for next year. 
so that's the one thing that I would uh, I would just say. And um, you know, you're quite right as far as the markets are concerned. Um, at some point, the Fed will have your back again. Uh, the Fed will have your back again. It'll just be at a different multiple, a different lower, but different level of valuation. Of course, inflation has to come down uh, quite a bit uh, from where it is today. Uh, and uh, the Fed believes that the only way that you're going to crush the inflation to where it is they want it to be, which is 2%, um, that's their holy grail. Uh, it's, it's not a not a number I ever came up with, but all these central banks will be decided that 2% is the holy grail. Yeah. You know that uh, Powell gave us a lot of information when they first started raising rates in March. He said at the press conference that the Fed is no longer going to be focused on supply. And I guess it's a case of one burnt twice shy. Uh, we had uh, the war in the Ukraine, big impact on global supply chains alongside with COVID. And of course, what happened in China, now maybe China's going to reopen their economy now more aggressively, but it's a, it's a little late. But of course, over the past couple of years, God forbid, you get a couple of COVID cases and Beijing shutting down port cities of 20 million people that are critical to the global supply chain. Uh, so Powell tells us in March, we're not focused on supply anymore. And I said, well, that's a very important comment. And I have the comment, I actually have that in my slide presentation. We are going to operate policy with a blind eye towards supply, which then told me as an economist, well, then the way they're going to crush inflation is through demand. So I pose the question back to you. Do you, do you really think, and, and it's in the third person, not directed to you personally, but when has the Fed never gotten what it wanted? And sometimes it gets too much of it. We got too much growth and maybe too much inflation from their policy back in uh, early 2020 that they kept promulgating right into uh, the end of 2021. The Fed always gets what it wants. So they're telling you that we want to crush inflation and we're going to do it through the demand side. Well, I got news for everybody. 70% of aggregate demand is consumer spending. Right. Now, it's 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 a bit it, that's not 100% true because look, consumer spending doesn't go down a lot in recessions. I would even tell you that in the biggest consumer recessions, consumer spending doesn't go down that much and people will always say to me, "Well, show me." And I'll show them that housing gets clobbered like it is right now. Uh, capital spending, well, you know, companies will cut CapEx uh, in a recession, commercial construction. Uh, but because so much of consumer spending is on utilities and it's on rents and it's on healthcare and it's on education, um, that basically half of consumer spending is not cyclical. But the half that is cyclical, that tends to get crunched. And so I think that's what we're going to be seeing in the coming year. Now, I know that some elements of the economy uh, like leisure, hospitality, part of the reopening trade, that's been hanging on very well. Air travel, a uh, small share of the economy, though. Uh, but my sense is that uh, you're going to have a much different consumer. It's, of course, we have the lags from the rate hikes that are going to kick in. We're going to have credit constriction. Availability of credit is going to be impaired in the coming year. Uh, and you're seeing the leading indicators of employment. Of course, that's one of the critical things. I think that the soft landing advocates right now will say, well, you know, show me the money when it comes to the labor market. And that much is true. Uh, but it wouldn't be the first time that non-farm payrolls were still rising into the early stages 
of a recession. Employment is always last man standing. But I'll just say this, that we have two surveys on employment. We have the non-farm payroll survey, which gets all the attention, uh, and there's the household survey. And the household survey is a smaller sample size, tends to be more volatile, but does a much better job at turning points in the cycle in both directions. On household sector employment, the household survey's been negative two months in a row. And that's actually telling me that once we start seeing negative payroll numbers, because that's what the Fed is focused on, the gig is going to be up. They just don't fay, as they say in the Quebec side of the uh, Ontario border, which is where I am. Uh, and so that, I think, is going to be the story. Of course, like I said, employment's last man standing. I, I, I tend to call, tell the soft landing advocates that they're really focused on lagging indicators. Uh, but the leading indicators for employment are actually showing that employment is going to be contracting. And then what happens when employment contracts? Incomes go down. Debt service goes up at a time when we're in a much higher interest rate environment. So you have people rolling over their debt in a higher rates deteriorating employment conditions, which is staring us in the face. It hasn't happened yet, but, you know, economists are paid to forecast the future, not tell people it's already happened. And uh, incomes recede. Uh, and there lies in, therein lies the, uh, the, the, the default story for the coming year. And it will only ultimately be solved in the next Fed easing cycle. And there will be another Fed easing cycle. It just will require inflation to come down more forcefully. But again, the leading indicators are all telling me that's going to happen by the second half of next year. I speak to a lot of companies in both crypto and traditional finance. And as it turns out, they share a common problem. They need a one-stop shop for treasury management and fast international payments around the globe. Circle's USDC is one of the most trusted and widely used stablecoins in the industry. At the time of this recording, USDC has 50 billion in circulation, one and a half million users worldwide, and is settling more than $5 trillion. That's trillion with a T worth of value. USDC has quickly become one of the easiest ways to move your money around the globe. On top of all that, Circle is building products for companies and institutions that want to adopt this technology. That means payment transactions, fraud management tools, digital asset custody, and a whole other suite of services. Here's one of my other favorite parts about Circle. They post monthly audits of their reserves, which means that I don't have to trust. I can verify that my money is safe, transparent, in a compliant manner. Helps me sleep easy at night, you know? As a seamless trusted digital dollar, USDC is a zero to one opportunity for the entire global financial system. And you know what? Don't trust me, you can verify. Check out their recently published Transparency Hub on the website. It's a great update to Circle's content in USDC, outlines everything from USDC weekly reserve reports, monthly attestations, and blog posts written by their exec team. Just go to circle.com backslash transparency to access it. Now, back to the show. What do you think of this? So we mentioned, so even this is right there in the Fed's dual mandate, right? They've got price stability and unemployment. Price stability is measured by CPI. Unemployment is measured by the unemployment rate. Those are very lagging indicators, right? In, time, in terms yeah. of how the entire business cycle or the economic cycle plays out, those are kind of at the very end. There's a criticism of the Fed that they're driving here by looking in the rearview mirror. And by the time they're, the rate hikes that we're, that we're doing right now, it's draconian, right? And there's a lot of, uh, I think people are very nervous about when we eventually do, to your point, feel the effects of, of the monetary policy that they're implementing, it's going to be too much. Where do you sort of fall out on the on the scale of, look, the Fed is doing what they need to do to fight inflation and, and maybe Powell is going to go down in the history books as some sort of Volcker, or 
he's driving in the rearview mirror here. He's not paying attention to the forward-looking indicators, and they're doing much more damage to the economy than they need to be doing. Right. Well, well look, a uh, few central bankers did more damage to the economy than uh, Paul Volcker did hmm. in the early 80s. Uh, you know, back-to-back recessions separated a year apart. And uh, people tend to forget that he was uh, vilified uh, back in the early 80s. Uh, I mean, Don Reagan, who was a uh, you know, former CEO of Merrill and at that point in the early 80s was Ronald Reagan's Treasury Secretary, pushed hard to get uh, Volcker fired. Uh, and uh, Reagan stuck with him. Uh, and then, of course, today, uh, you know, f- four decades later, uh, he's revered as the best central banker who ever lived. But let's remember how he killed the inflation of the day was back-to-back severe recessions and a three-year bear market in equities. It ended with a multiple of eight. Uh, and uh, so, you know, it's amazing what happens with the passage of time. So well, what are you going to say about Jay Powell? Has he over-tightened? In my opinion, absolutely. Has it been overkill? Absolutely. Is it evident just yet? No, not quite yet. It'll be evident next year. Uh, and uh, and probably the year after that because of all the lags that'll kick in. But you see, you got to put yourself in Jay Powell's shoes. Would we have acted differently? Uh, How do you want to be remembered in history? And I think that most central bankers uh, and most people in the financial markets, as I said, they they, they put uh, Paul Volcker up on a pedestal. How do you want to to be remembered? And I I sort of felt badly for Jay Powell because a year ago and at the beginning of this year, he's been compared to Arthur Burns and he's going into his second term, his final term. The last thing you want to be, last thing you want to be compared to as a central banker, is Arthur Burns. But mind you, I think that's a little unfair for people that know the history of Arthur Burns. But He was an, infa- he was an inflation fighter. It's about, it's about perception. So, yeah. look, the way the way that Powell sees it, yeah, you know what, I'm going to kill the economy. I'm going to generate a recession because uh, we actually might not be able to control the supply side of the economy, but we sure as hell can control the, the demand side. And people will remember me uh, with a great reverence, like they do Paul Volcker, that I crushed this inflation. Now, the inflation that uh, Powell had in his hands, uh, we had 18 months of inflation coming from the pandemic and the response to the pandemic. Uh, and then the war in Ukraine for shooting war in 40 years in, uh, in uh, well, more, I guess it'd be uh, more like uh, 80 years in uh in, in, in Europe. And, uh, you know, so here he is, uh, Volcker had almost 15 years of a structural inflation to deal with. But the reality is that, uh, I think that Powell's got to think about preserving the legacy for himself, preserving the legacy for the fed. Uh, and so the fed is there, you know, to preserve, uh, the purchasing power of the currency. Uh, otherwise known as inflation, uh, policy mistakes were made, not the first time. And what happens is that the policy mistakes then get corrected, which is what he's doing right now. And uh, this just comes down to a classic, you know, Bob Farrell's, you know, rule number one, uh, which is the concept of mean reversion. And uh, it applies to monetary policy over ease, over tighten, over ease, over tighten. And that's where we have business cycles. Uh, is because of these excesses. But mean reversion, you don't stop at the mean. The mean is just some horizontal line over time. You go through the mean in both directions. So 
just think of how we have to rewind this movie. We had dramatic. Uh, when you think of what the synthetic industry was, when they were opening up their kimono to everything, right up to the high yield bond market and cutting rates to zero and leaving it there for so long, oops, and alongside, and then of course, ratifying all the fiscal stimulus, we get the big inflation. And, uh, and now they've over tightened, and we're going to get the ensuing deflation. And I say deflation, even with all due deference to deglobalization and all these other things that people talk about the great retirement theme, so on and so forth. I think we're going I think this time next year, inflation is going to be well below the Fed's target. Mm. And I wouldn't be surprised, actually, if we we're talking about negative year on year CPI prints. I know it sounds crazy, but I was saying this back in the summer of 08, when I was at Merrill and oil was $150 a barrel and everybody was talking about global decoupling and the commodity super cycle and inflation was about 6% back then. Uh, and who knew a year later that the headline inflation rate would be minus 2%. Mm. Uh, so, and that was a big surprise. And I think the surprise will be, and Jenny Yellen said something very similar. She didn't just say the last 24 hours that inflation is going to come down in the coming year. She said it's going to come down a lot. Mm. Uh, and I'm in that camp. You know, Dave, I, I want to just make an observation about, you know, I, I heard you describe inflation and how multi-factor uh, multi nuanced it is. And, you know, there's this there's this theory right now that's basically the inverse of a theory that was around during the 1960s and 1970s, which was 1960s, 1970s, or 1970s, 1980s inflation theory was there's a lot of young people in the United States, right? There's a lot of young couples who uh, are highly productive and blah, blah, blah. They're driving a lot of this inflation. Now you actually have the inverse of that, which is, well, people are leaving the labor force. There aren't enough people uh, who are of working age, right? And so they're going to have more pricing power for their labor and they're going to drive uh, more, you know, wage increases, and that's going to cause inflation. And it's just a little funny to me because if you think about it, those two theories, which sound logical, are the exact inverse of one another. So I just, I just think it's important to point out when it comes to inflation, it's probably not just a one-trick pony, and there's a whole bunch of different complicated factors that go into it. You, you hit the nail on the head. It's uh, inflation is a is complex, mm -hmm. and I tend to find a lot of people try to boil it down with a lot of simplicity. Uh, they talk about uh, the participation rate. The participation rate peaked 22 years ago. Uh, and heading into the pandemic, what was inflation doing? It's very clear to me as to what happened with this inflation. And, of course, people that were dreaming up different reasons to why inflation is going to be a problem uh, to perpetuity. Uh, the deglobalization theme is, is way overblown. I'm not going to say that we can't pay attention to it, that there's not some modest impacts on the global cost structure, but it's way overplayed. And it's going to take place over many, many years and decades. And it's not even clear to me that we're going to be seeing onshoring as much as nearshoring. And of course, one of the countries in the world that's going to benefit the most is probably Mexico, which is still a low cost producer, uh, and into the US, say at the expense of, of China. You know, I was hearing back again, 10 years ago, what we heard about was declining population and labor force in China, China no longer a low cost producer. China's going to have cost push inflation. It's going to spread globally. Well, did that ever happen? No, because the production moved to other areas like Vietnam and like Bangladesh and so on and so forth. So people just dream up these things. But here's what I'm going to say. Uh, when you take a look at the U.S. economy, okay, uh, and we're taking a look at uh, where GDP growth has been in the past three years. So since COVID, so uh, COVID, uh, the lockdowns, 
all the stimulus, the reopening, uh, and then of course recently, you know, just basically uh, bouncing along the bottom. Uh, past three years, real GDP growth has averaged about two percent. Okay, uh, why that's important is because in the three years before COVID, GDP growth averaged roughly two percent, and GDP is what GDP is aggregate demand. So I'm trying to wrap this around my head is demand growth through all the volatility in the past three years averaged two percent three years before COVID two percent so demand hasn't changed demand hasn't changed uh what's changed has been supply okay that's what's changed is that we had a massive disruption to global supply chains and that's really been the story and so what I'm trying to say is that you're taking a look the unemployment rate 3.7 this time in December 2019 before COVID it was a three and a half percent the employment to population ratio even the participation rate the capital to labor ratio all that stuff is the same you can't point to any of these things I just talked about and say we're in some sort of new inflationary cycle and demand growth is the same as it was back then mm -hmm. and you can't forecast inflation with one curve you need supply and demand. Now, the story is that demand has not changed. You're right, in the 1970s, we had booming demand. Booming demand because the boomers were buying their first cars, their refrigerators, their houses. The demographics worked the other direction. When we, weren't, we, when we were not in recession in the 1970s, and in the 1970s, despite the fact that there's a massive blemish on the 1970s, almost three quarters of the time, we were in an economic expansion. And the economy was expanding at over a 5% annual rate. Tell me the last time that we had GDP growth at 5%. So we don't have vibrant demand. You can't show me a model saying we got vibrant demand. We had it for a little bit of time because of the reopening trade, bumping against the fiscal stimulus. It's all in the rear view mirror. Demand growth hasn't changed. We had the supply bottlenecks. And now I'm seeing all these supply bottlenecks. When you're taking a look at order backlogs and you're taking a look at vendor supply delivery delays you're taking a look at commodity prices take a look at freight rates they're all telling you a consistent story which is that we are seeing a thaw on the supply side globally and of course you're seeing that in the oil price as well oil prices are down more than 40 percent transportation costs are down nobody talks about this they focus on headline cpi just like you were saying cpi is not a real-time inflation indicator it's really a lagging indicator and you're 100 right on that so the point I'm making is that, you know, the Fed, is the Fed making a policy mistake? Well, you know, maybe not. They want to generate a recession. They've told us that. They want to generate a recession. They want to generate a recession uh, next year uh, to get inflation down. They want it down quickly. So he compares himself to Paul Volcker. And Paul Volcker is revered, as I said before, for crushing inflation. Well, he didn't do it by creating more labor or creating more productive capacity. That's not the Fed's, that's just not what they can do. Uh, they crush demand, and that's what this Fed is doing. So to say that they're making a policy mistake, they're not dummies. They know what they're doing. They know they're hiking into an inverted yield curve. They know what the risks are. They told us back in the March meeting, they said that, the, sorry, in the September meeting, last time they gave us an economic forecast, and of course they're going to update it this week, they told us the unemployment rate is going to go from a low of 3.5% to 4.4% next year. That's their latest forecast. Well. I got news for you. For all the people out there that are advocating soft landing, I've got news for you. You've never not had a recession 
with the unemployment rate going up 90 basis points from the cycle low. People say to me, well, 4.4%, what's wrong with that? It's pretty low. No, no, no. No, it's not the level of the unemployment rate. It's the change. And historically, and I got data back to 1950, when the unemployment rate is up as much as what the Fed is saying it's going to be up next year, which is 90 basis points, you're already in the fourth month of recession. And that's what's staring us in the face for next year. So we're going to get the demand destruction, Michael, at the same time that we're seeing a global supply thought. Now, I don't know, maybe Putin's got other plans in Europe. You know, maybe China is just like fooling us about their reopening and that they're going to close cities again and close ports again. Who knows about the supply side? It seems to me, though, looking at the real-time data, the supply side is thawing out at the same time that the Fed is bent on demand contraction. Let's not say destruction. That's uh, that's uh, too harsh of a word. Demand contraction. Well, I'm looking at supply-demand curves because that's what they teach you in Economics 101. And I cannot believe the number of people out there that still say inflation is going to be sticky. I don't know what they're looking at. If they're looking at deglobalization as their call for inflation next year, what are you talking about? That will take place over 10, 20, 30 years. That is not next year's story. Next year's story is a pernicious cyclical decline in inflation with the high prospect that we morph into deflation. Mm-hmm. Dave, help help me understand, you know, how do assets perform coming out, uh, let's say into and out of, right, the recession that we're talking about here, right? Maybe if we could just go through bonds, let's talk about U.S. equities, if we want to parse out kind of more value stocks from growthy stocks in general, commodities, and I'd love to get your thoughts on crypto. I know you're not a huge crypto bull, but I'd love to get your get your thoughts there. Um, how, you know, how, how do assets kind of fare into next year and what ends up sort of getting Bid first, I guess, on, on a recovery. Bid first will be uh, will be the bond market, and yeah. it's already starting. Uh, you know, I mean, the ten-year Treasury note yield is down what, like 80, 90 basis points from the October high. Yeah, uh, and that's what the Fed's sounding still hawkish and a little bellicose. Let's just say. You see, when I mentioned the equity risk premium before, uh, and we have to get to say that 400, 425 basis point level, and we're not even halfway there yet, the bond market's got to play a role in that. The bond yields have to go down. Treasury yields have to go down to provide the stock market with that relative valuation support that it always gets at the lows. So what I'm saying is what comes first, the chicken or the egg? The rally in treasuries has to happen first. There's not a snowball's chance in hell in recessionary bear market that the lows are put in absent a meaningful decline in treasury yields. Now I'll take you back. We talked about Volcker. We talked about Volcker. Well, you know, look, the, the stock market bottomed in say August of 1982. Treasury yields bottomed peaked almost a year earlier and came down something like a hundred basis points by the time the stock market bottomed in the summer of 1982. Bond yields have to come down. If you're bullish on equities, I've got a message for you. You first have to be bullish on bonds. There will not be a bottom in stocks without treasuries rallying significantly next year, and it's already starting. And it's also a classic case of accounting 101, uh, FIFO, first in, first out. You find historically that the first asset class to enter its bear market in a cycle is the first one to exit its bear market. This has happened to a T. So the first asset class to go into the bear market, say back in uh, the summer of uh, 2020, was treasuries. And then by the end of 2021, it was equities. And the summer of this year was commodities. So I would say that uh, 
you want to be bullish on equities, the first thing that has to happen is treasury yields have to go down. That will require economic growth to slow further, slowing further from a flat profile like we have right now in the past two to four quarters will be in contraction. And we will need inflation to come down, which naturally happens in a recession, the Fed to cut interest rates, all this stuff is part of the cycle. This happens next year. So I'm very bullish on long dated treasuries. Uh, in terms of the equity market, I think you want to be very defensive. Uh, and I think you want to be more thematic. I don't, I don't like the value over growth. I don't like that at all because so much of value is the banks, financials, which I think um, are a bit of a value trap right now. I think in a default cycle, owning financials, which make up the value space, uh, not so much. Value, I think of commodities. Uh, not so much in a global recession, industrials make up the value proposition. Uh, I'm not so sure because I think capital spending is going to be cut next year along with employment. So I hear about value over growth and it's not as if I'm bullish on growth either. Although um, I'm not bullish on the mega cap concept growth stocks that carried us for so long, but actually there might be a stronger case for growth over value next year as long-term interest rates go down because growth stocks are the longest duration stocks um, but again, you want to be very uh, nimble in that regard. But I'm not bullish on value over growth. I, I don't even like the topic, to tell you the truth. I like more about where do I want to be. Uh, I want to be in consumer staples. Uh, I want to be in utilities. Uh, I want to be in aerospace defense. Military budgets are going up everywhere. Uh, Japan just passed its uh, its biggest military budget increase in the post-World War II era. You're seeing the same thing in Europe. Uh, so um, military spending, defense budgets, for obvious reasons, are going up. That's the place you're going to invest in. Cybersecurity, another one. Um, you know, green energy, another one. Uh, I would say that in the commodity space, I'm not bullish on commodities, but I do think that you have a secular tailwind because of the lack of capital investment. So I think commodities are still gonna have a rough year, but we're gonna bottom at a higher level than we have in the past. But so I think you wanna be very thematic in your investing. Uh, I think that you've been paid to be in cash the past few quarters, that much is true. That's been a gift for the Fed to those people that have had liquidity. I think that the big trade is gonna be at least the first half of next year is gonna be the rally in treasuries. Uh, and I think in the equity market, you wanna be uh, very selective, but I would say that the lower the correlation of what you own in your equity portfolio to GDP, the better off you're going to be. Hmm. How about, um, I, I, I got to ask you this question, crypto. Uh, do you have any, I, I know you haven't been super bullish on it in the past, but, I, and you know, I'd like, love to get your thoughts on gold as well and how you feel about gold. Well, you know, crypto um, is, uh, is a total mystery to me. I, I, I didn't invest in it. Uh, I never recommended anybody invest in it. Um, and, uh, I know there's a lot of brilliant commentators out there that were very bullish on it and remain bullish on crypto. You know, I see it as, um, important part of, uh, financial technology and, uh, efficient means of payment, um, as part of the global financial nomenclature. I, I see it. I see it. Uh, I just don't know where it would fit into somebody's portfolio. Uh, how do you how do you value it? How do you value crypto? I mean, it's it's basically purely sentiment and greed. Um, and uh, I, I like to be able to focus on how do I value this particular asset class? Uh, 
some equities dividend discount model uh, in the credit market. You know, you look at, uh, uh, you know, where the uh, spread or the rate is against prospective defaults. Uh, you know, you're taking a look at um, uh, price earnings multiples, price to book in the financial sector. Uh, gold is basically a hedge against the U.S. dollar uh, or basically inversely correlated to real interest rates. So I know what to look for when I take a look at these various asset classes. What do you look for for crypto? How do you value it? And people always said to me, well, we know that on Bitcoin, there's a production cap and we just basically relate it to the outstanding valuation of gold when we do our valuations on crypto, to which I say, well, why not just buy gold? gold? <laughs> so, uh, no, I think that, um, you, you know, the people, look, look, the people that, there's two types of people that went into crypto, as far as I know. There were the billionaires that is a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of percent of their portfolio, and let's take a punt, you know. Uh, Bitcoin can go down 60%. They're not going to notice it. And then there's the people that think it's some get-rich-quick scheme. Uh, and, uh, boy, <laughs> A lot of them have been clobbered, depending on where they bought it. Um, but look at the volatility. And that's what's different between gold and crypto, is gold is relatively stable. Uh, crypto is, uh, I mean, you got to have ice in your veins. Uh, so, you know, it might be fun to trade. I don't see it as an investment. I don't know why people were talking about it as part of your asset class. Why? It's, it's cryptocurrency. It's a currency. I never heard anybody say to me, Dave, should I make Swiss francs or make sterling or make the Canadian dollar or make the euro part of my asset mix? I never heard anybody talking about currency as part of their asset mix. Uh, and yet this became uh, some legitimate form of people's asset mix. And I think they just collectively lost their mind. So um, I don't have a particularly strong view about crypto, except that it's not for me. So uh, I find that uh, there's other things to focus on where you can make money uh, without having to lose sleep at night or experience that type of volatility. Okay, the one thing we know is that gold can go through a bear market, go through a bull market. It doesn't exhibit uh, that type of volatility. Now, for some people that want to trade for a living, I think it's great. You've got probably tremendous optionality. You can trade it. But that's not investing. That's a that's a casino. I understand that. I have a I have a positive view on it myself, to be honest. But I completely understand the viewpoint. I just don't know how to value it. So it's, uh, it's, it could be you know it could be zero. It could be five hundred thousand. Take your pick. I don't know, I don't know how to value it. So I just for things that I can't value, and I'll leave that to other people. Um, I just stay away. Mm. Dave, I, I, zooming out for for two seconds here, you know we're going into we're going into 2023, and I don't know if you have thoughts on, you know, a, a lot of the conversation that that's come up over this past, not not even just this last year, maybe they've intensified around this last year, but do you have thoughts on sort of U.S. primacy going forward and the place that the U.S. economy has, uh, you know, moving into this next sort of decade or so? There's a lot of you know you hear a lot of talk about how the U.S. economy is in necessarily doing super well, how there's a Thucydides trap and China's going to come and eat our lunch and the, the death of the dollar is imminent and all of this type of stuff. Where do you kind of say, I don't know if you take views sort of that high level, or where do you kind of see, I guess, the US? How do you see the US varying compared to the rest of the world going into this new mm. year? Well, <laughs> it's a, it's always, it's always a relative game. Mm. 
and uh, so I guess I would line up in uh, in the camp that says that uh, the U.S. is the cleanest shirt in the laundry basket, although it still has a lot of stains. Uh, and yeah. so I would say that um, if you ask me, look, I, I think that uh, you know people could lay claim that you know we, the U.S. dollar rolls over, uh, which it pr- probably will. Uh, that is going to breathe life into emerging market assets. Uh, and if you have a year-long view, uh, get it coming out of the recession. Well, coming out of recessions and uh, the U.S. dollar rolling over, and it has been the most overcrowded trade, then I would say that emerging markets traditionally uh, are your high beta trade uh, coming out of a recession. Um, historically, that much is true. They live and breathe off of liquidity, and that usually is the bullish part of the story uh, as recessions end and you move into the expansion phase, just as we saw the inverse on emerging markets as liquidity dried up, you know, through all of this year, the last place you want to have your money was in most parts, Uh, you know, maybe not India, um, but in generally speaking, emerging markets have been tough. You're asking about the next decade and it's going to sound again like a glib remark, but uh, I don't think that anybody's ever made much money, uh, you know, betting against the U.S. The U.S. economy is really uh, an engine built on um, capital formation and ingenuity and innovation. Uh, and so I know this sounds like I'm uh, all of a sudden Dave Rosenberg's become a permeable and I'm just with the cheerleading at the sidelines. But I would say that if you told me the next 10 years I had to pick a country to invest in, it would be it would be the U.S. It'd be the U.S. And, you know, because st- because of the political and economic stability. Uh, and what happens in the United States, it's a bit like the Wild West, as you build up excesses. We've seen this in the past. Um, and then the excesses get purged. Ten-year cycles, and I had to pick one region of the world to invest in. And look, I'm, I'm Canadian, very, very proud Canadian. Uh, it'd be in the U.S., no doubt about it. Dave, uh, you know, we're, we're moving towards our sort of closing remarks here. We promised the readers a recommendation here. What's the favorite book on, on the bookshelf? If you stuck around. I don't, I don't, I don't know if you could see it there, but I, and I would say this is the book that you definitely want to read. It's probably not there because it's uh it's a, it's on my night table mm. and it's Charles Kindleberger's manias, panics and crashes. Mm. And I think for the time, that is the one book you want to read over the holiday season. Uh, Charles Kindleberger, Manias, panics, and crashes. Great, I you know that that, that 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 will go well with a double single malt. Okay, <laughs> I've got a I've got a similar one on my list. Actually, I'd be curious to get your opinion. I've got the Edward Chancellor Devil Take the Hindmost, which I understand is about relatively similar subject matter. So, I think that's it's a great recommendation. It's all about look. It's all about uh, you know. This is no. We should never be dogmatic or be stubborn. Uh, and uh, we should be pragmatic at all times. But I said before, my grandmother taught me that forewarned is forearmed, and this is a year to take out the umbrella. And Manias, Panics, and Crashes, I think that you read it right now, and I've read it three times, Uh, and the last time I actually read it was in the summer of 2007. That book will ground you. That's, I will guarantee you might not agree with all of it. You will not like all of it. Uh, and it is the historical record uh, 
of market cycles and extremes and the correction of extremes. And so, you know, once again, as Warren Buffett famously said, the thing we learn about history is that people don't learn from, from history. history. So Charles Kinnerberger's book will get you back into learning about history and why it's relevant for the time we're in right now. Mm. Dave, I'm sure most people are familiar with you already, you know, not just from from this podcast, but can you tell the folks a little bit about some of the work that you do at, at Rosenberg Research? And if folks want to subscribe or find out more about your work, what's the best way to do it? Well, look, we uh, probably have 10 different uh, offerings. Uh, I do uh, my Breakfast with Dave, which is uh, the flagship daily publication. Uh, and we do special reports uh, on industry, on the capital markets, uh, on countries, uh, and we do probably two of those a month. Um, one publication that's becoming a real flagship as well uh, has been our monthly strategizer uh, publication. comes out every month, uh, and it's global equities, sectors, bond duration, credit, commodities, uh, FX, and we've morphed it into an asset allocation tool uh, for investors. Uh, and, uh, you know, my, my chart package, we do uh, frequent uh, webcasts as well. Uh, and for anybody that wants to have personal access to me, a lot of people don't just want to have the red stuff, but want to be able to talk to me. Um, uh, then we have something called the enterprise package, which includes that as well. So, uh, it's all bundled together in the what's called the premium package, which is sold at a 70% discount to the sum of all the components. But people can actually, if they want to buy one or two things, they can do that as well. Uh, I would just say, uh, you know, come on the Rosenberg Research website. You just have to Google Rosenberg Research. Come on the website. We offer a one-month free trial uh, so that when I started the business, my consultant says, well, you know, nobody gives one-month free trial. Do one or two weeks. And I said, well, I want... I want, I want prospects who I want to turn into clients to have the full suite of products over a month, to have a smorgasbord uh, so that they, they know what they're getting into. Uh, so uh, that's basically it in a nutshell. We, 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 we do the small picture. We do the big picture. Uh, we have a trading tool and a momentum tool. We have our big picture uh, investment recommendations. And it's basically all about... Um, marrying the macro with the markets and connecting the dots between uh, the data and how do you invest in the financial markets, uh, which has been my mantra for the past four decades. So uh, I started the business in January, 2020. Uh, it's like, ha I have three sons. It's like having my fourth kid. It's like, <laughs> and uh, I, we've been having a lot of fun with it. Uh, so yeah, I encourage everybody. It doesn't cost you a cent to come on the, uh, get on the website and uh, click the button and get the free trial. Uh, and at a minimum, I'd love to hear back and see uh, if it's providing uh, any value to you. And uh, that's uh, the best way to contact RosenbergResearch.com or just Google Rosenberg Research. It'll take you right to the website. We'll link it in the show notes as well. Dave, you've been a wealth of knowledge. Thank you so much for making the time, especially around the holidays. Uh, it's been a pleasure. We will uh, have to do it again soon and enjoy the uh, time with family. Thanks very much. And to you as well. And uh, to all the viewers, uh, all the best for the uh, holiday season and to a uh, prosperous uh, and healthy and happy uh, 2023. Well said. All right, Dave. We'll talk again soon. Cheers, my friend. You as well.